Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. My guest today is Justin Webb, journalist, broadcaster, author, and according to his Twitter bio, rugby super forecaster. From Ulster to London, via Washington and Brussels, he's at the forefront of narrating great events as an anchor of Radio 4's Today programme. He also recounts his experiences as the BBC's US editor in his book, Cheers America! How an Englishman Learned to Love America. Perhaps that's why he's such a fan of big cars. His favourite, like Billy Joe Spears before him, an old Chevrolet. They don't make cars like they used to, and they certainly don't make them like my guest today, Justin Webb. Justin, welcome to Changemakers. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Michael, thank you. Thank you so much. Good to be here. I must say, I've got a, I've got a sort of a strong sense of imposter syndrome being, being uh, interviewing one of the great inquisitors. But um, let's start with one of your greats. Actually, I noticed when you sent um, you know, people that inspired you, um, I actually put a few few dots together. John Humphreys and Noddy Holder of Slade. I thought those were two, um, those were two crackers. Well, I mean, there you go. You see, you got on the one hand, you got with John, you got that uh, terrier-like ability that he had and actually still has. I can tell you, one to one off air, um, because I talk to him pretty regularly. Number two, Noddy Holder, the voice, the voice, the voice of a generation. Well, it was the voice of generation. My God, what a voice he, he had. I suppose I shouldn't talk about it in the past, actually. It's still with us, thankfully. Although he must be getting on a bit because I am. Well, you know, but you look great on it. I mean, but you described John Humphreys um, as indefatigable and fearless. He w- did a recent interview with The Times where he talked about the people that he thought were great interviews. And, and he, he described himself as being in awe of Mrs. Thatcher. I thought two two points. One is just what does it take for that to happen with him? And and also, have you been in awe of, of any of the people you've you've interviewed from Obama to Cameron, Blair, Bush and others? Um, I've been in awe of um, the occasional interviewee, but normally not because I suppose there is this sense in the modern era, and I'm an interviewer, after John, and I started doing it long after he'd been doing it for many years. But in the modern interview era, people are too practiced and too um, uh, preaked and preened by PR people and too on message. And the, the issue there, and it's a, a big issue for all of us, is that there are the modern thinking, and when I say modern, I mean in the last five years or so, has been get your message across say it, don't worry about the interview itself, don't worry how stupid you look if you refuse to answer a question or just ignore it, just get the message across because that is what works. And that I think has damaged the ability of us to be in awe of anyone because you've lost the kind of cut and thrust that you had with Brian Walden's interviews in the 1970s um, and that you had with many of John's longer interviews as well, where there is a give and take and there are moments of drama, moments of pathos sometimes in in the best interviews. And to an extent, I think, we have in, in the modern era lost all of that. So it means that when you interview someone, you are kind of naturally going to be less impressed with them. Didn't surprise me at all, by the way, that John did pick um, Mrs. Thatcher, because in some respects, they're pretty similar. Not too interested in a massive amount of introspection. Both um, suffered from being um, looked down on early on in their lives and were not only affected by that, but in a way built by that sense of wanting to get back at the, the sods who had not taken them seriously. Not for turning. Yeah, there's quite a lot of uh, Margaret Thatcher and John, I'd say. I mean, do you think that, I mean, 2020 seems to be a year where so many, you know, of our kind of, I, I guess, 
well thought through truths and ideas have been blown open through coronavirus, Black Lives Matter, all the sorts of things that I guess have 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 happened this year. Do you think do you think that changes that status quo of polished messaging and you know, I mean, do you do you think that we're actually on the cusp of change, or do you think that that's a point that's being overplayed at the moment? Um, I'm, I'm not sure we are, actually. I, I mean, I think all these things happen gradually. Sometimes things are speeded up, aren't they, by events, and events have speeded up some aspects of, of life. I'm not sure in broadcasting. I think we're in a kind of odd position at the, at the moment where we, we've become rather disgusted, all of us. I, mean, I think I probably include politicians in this, um, with, with where we were going, and we need to find a new way of being um, uh, interesting and, and vivacious in debate uh, uh, and, and having that alongside the, all the social media messaging and all the kind of, all, all that stuff. And we're, we're not quite there yet, but I'm not, I'm not sure we're changing from one to another. I, th- I think we will still need to have, you know, all democracies, all organisations actually need to have, don't they, an ability of people to talk openly and to find ways of doing that. And we're, we're, we're kind of um, messing around at the moment with what the rules are. But I think yeah, that, that kind of basic fundamental one, we've got to be able to talk to each other and we've got to be able to tell the truth to each other. That, that's that's what I was, so, so telling the truth to each other, I mean, that, that sort of requires authenticity, but I guess bravery, it requires... Um, qualities that um, may well be in short supply in terms of the kind of leadership cast at the moment, do you think? And I think a lot, a lot of them would say, well, hang on a second, what about the state of journalism? Or what about the way in which we are um, trapped in gotcha headlines and you, know, you want us to come on and admit that we got things wrong and then you say in banner headlines, they got things wrong, they're useless. We need to be, it does need to come from both sides. And I think that's a reasonable point. But a, along with the a change in the way that politicians deal with people and a more grown-up approach to governing will have to come a more grown-up approach to um, uh, how we treat them and the questions we ask and the leeway that you that you give. And that, of course, is very difficult in the era of social media where everyone kind of... Now, I was looking the other day, someone was talking about the Spanish holiday business and the quarantine that was suddenly imposed and someone was saying you know everyone's going to be judging the people who went who went abroad and and are now trapped or having to quarantine when they get back and i was thinking well why why, why would you judge a family who tried to go on holiday what's wrong with us all we're kind of endlessly judging each other and of course the truth is i thought about it for a moment or two and as soon as i did think about it the truth is we're not it's just a twitter thing we are not as nasty. You're not a nasty person. We don't judge each other. We recognise human frailties. We're the same people. We're the same people that we always were, and yet we've got trapped by Zuckerberg and these these people into into endless, endless conflict. And and that is the challenge, it seems to me. And I should say, this is not the BBC talking; it's me talking as a human being. I I just think we have to find a way back from that. Mm. I mean, I, I just wonder the degree. And if you look at actually, if you look at the ingredients of this, I mean, you've mentioned social media. There's obviously, I, I guess, our own journey as a nation in terms of the way we've, we, you know, we report news and consume it. But you had um, a period from 2001 to 2009 um, in the US as the BBC's North America editor. I mean, pretty much corresponding with the rise of Fox News as the 
predominant news network, opinion-led network. Um, the founder of that, Roger Ailes, saying the truth is whatever people will believe. I mean, do you see that as an import into the UK, or or, or do you actually even agree? You know, agree that that actually has the effect on the way that news is created um, today in 2020? Uh, it has had an effect. There's absolutely no question about that. Whether we can uh, get back from it um, is another question, and an open question, I think. So the idea that people should be allowed to believe whatever they want to believe, actually in the United States, goes way back from Fox News. There's a wonderful book by a guy called Kurt Anderson um, uh, called Fantasyland about um, the way in which the United States, since it, its inception, has had this extraordinary ability to combine truth and fiction. And the example he uses is Buffalo Bill, who really did, did fight Indians and kill them, but then also had a show in which he fought Indians um, uh, on stage. And he combined the two uh, back in the 19th century. And uh, became this kind of weird figure that was both truth and fiction. And what Kurt Anderson suggests is that was very much a part of the American experience for all sorts of reasons I won't get into now. The, uh, the, the book is a very good one. And he says that back in the 60s, that is when the hippie movement and a lot of people actually on the American left started to say, whatever turns you on, whatever you think, uh, whatever's good for you, whatever you believe, then that is true. And it and so it didn't necessarily start with Fox News, um, although, my goodness, they took up the baton and, and ran with it. But it started in, in the 60s with this kind of counterculture movement, and it's built on that. Actually, a much firmer foundation than Fox News, because it's a much more kind of social, cultural thing that Americans have, where they do have a respect for those who invent their own facts. Inventing your own facts. I mean, obviously... You know, let's let's pass the baton on then to Donald Trump as as president facing election in November. In terms of his role in creating this environment that we're we're talking about, and in terms of where that might take him um, in an autumn election, how, how do you see it? Well, I mean, he, he's very very behind in the polls, and he's trying to work out now a kind of crucial issue for him: does he carry on in this? Um, a place that is unfactual, counterfactual, or but appealing to some, particularly the people who want to believe in conspiracy theories for psychological reasons, let alone political ones, or does he try to move back hastily uh, into what we used to call the centre ground, but perhaps the factual ground? Um, and you know, he'll have a lot of advisors who are telling him to do that. He, he didn't noticeably do it when he first came to office. Mm. I was going to ask, do you think he's temperamentally capable of that? Yeah, well, that's the question. I mean, I, don't, I honestly don't know, and, and that, that is very much the, the question about him. There are people who have written about him cogently and interestingly, people who are supporters of his, who are on the right. I'm never terribly interested in reading kind of rants about Donald Trump. But there are one or two quite good books about, about him, um, including one by Victor Davis Hanson, who's a, very much a supporter of his, who says openly it is going to end badly. And in tears. Because, I mean, I mean, to that point, you, you, you've just written recently that you think, um, well, actually you, you said here that um, the, 
the will Trump resign question is more than a gossip line for bored political nerds. It's a plain possibility. I mean, I mean, do you, do you um do you think we we could actually see that that he could just pull up and say, look, I don't even want to be president for a second term? Yeah, I think I mean anything is possible, and I think you know he, he does have half an eye on his business interests, perhaps more than half an eye on his business interests, and there are pressures within the family. Um, about what happens to him. Remember, it is in, in that kind of very kind of mafiosi style, a family affair. Um, and and there is this kind of um, uh, sense about him that what he really wants to do is surprise and shock. And so I don't think entirely outside the bounds of possibility that he, that he does that. Though he's talking at the moment about delaying the election potentially, which he doesn't have the power to do. But so, you know, at the moment, he's very much invested in, in doing it, but it wouldn't entirely surprise me. I mean, I'd lo- I'd love to think of a, an an interesting segue or, or a sort of uh, credible segue from from uh, from him to your early life. But I mean, I, I just want to move on to Justin's journey from Trump's travels. Let's uh, let's get back to to you because I mean, obviously, you know, you've you've got journalism in in the blood quite quite literally uh, through through your father, Peter Woods. You took you took him, but to inherit a father at the age of fifty is quite a strange experience. But you you had had a life editing the LSE student newspaper, The Beaver. I mean, to, to what degree do you think that, that this is something that you were just born into in terms of becoming a journalist, becoming a broadcaster? It's a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, how much have all of us been affected by our, by our genes? And we continuously wonder about it and debate it and... Obviously, when it comes to sort of raw intelligence, it's a very tricky subject and one that people kind of shy away from. But when it comes to what you're good at, um, I, my father was a, a, a very able journalist. My grandfather on my mother's side was also, though, was the, the first editor of the Radio Times, edited a magazine called Titbits, which um, was a, one of these very successful kind of middle of the road, middle range magazines that existed, probably had its heyday before the, the war. But so there the was in my um, family an enormous amount of writing, quick writing. Um, we are not a family of literary giants, to put it mildly. But, but you can make a deadline. We can smash out 500 words um, quite quickly and they'll make rough sense. And that's, I've unquestionably, if it is inheritance, I've inherited that. And also the desire to do it. So, I mean, I really did want to do it. Um, I never gave a thought, actually, to, to it being a family thing. I, I, I just wanted to do it for myself. And frankly, I couldn't really do much else either, which kind of also helped point you in a particular direction. But you've had an extraordinary journey. I mean, the, the stuff of, of memoirs and, and the likes. I mean, in terms of that, that sort of, I mean, what would you take out of it in terms of the person you become today? It's really difficult, isn't it? Because you, you, I, I had a strange upbringing as much as I never met my father, um, although I knew who he was, but I lived in a very repressed household with my mother, although she was very loving, didn't want to talk about him and only ever once mentioned him and then never did again. How did you deal with that? Um, I, I dealt with it by repressing it myself, so I never made any effort to, to find him um, and I never really thought about him. I mean, genuinely didn't to the extent that when I started at the BBC in 1984, he was still there and I never made any effort to, to find him or, or say hello. 
Um, it, it really, I mean, genuinely didn't occur to me to. It was that deeply repressed. But I was a child in the 70s when repression was uh, all the rage of all sorts of things. So, so how's that how's that affected you as a dad yourself? Have you gone completely the other way? You're now a complete pushover. Maybe completely the other way, actually. I think my wife would say I am... Not the disciplinarian. Endlessly, uselessly unable to enforce any kind of discipline um overly concerned about whether everyone's okay all the time um uh you know i grew up in an era where nobody ever mentioned the word happiness or, or asked anyone whether they were happy and i think i probably still i'm repressed enough still not actually to use that word but i'm obviously you know concerned about my kids upbringing and concerned about my relationship with them to an extent very much probably affected by the way I was brought up and by the kind of weirdness of my of my early life. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Larkin was right. We're all left up by, by our parents, but in different ways. And I think, you know, one of the things I wouldn't do is, is, is go down the kind of, it's odd, people kind of sometimes contact me and say, you know, you're a posh boy, you went to boarding school, you know, what do you know about... Um, American imperialism or, or you know, you're a pal of the Tories or whatever because of your upbringing. And I think, my God, if you knew about my upbringing, how deeply, deeply peculiar it was, you, if you were honest with yourself, would think twice about putting me in a particular bracket. But then, of course, that's true of all of us. And this is the whole point about identity politics. Well, because well, I was going to ask that because the identity politics is that, you know, you don't have to sort of Google search too long before you find people with extremely long written, long formed opinions of, of you and what you stand for and, and, all, and all the rest of it. And I, I wonder how you, how you respond to that as a, as a public figure in your own right, in terms of people that, you know, certainly in the time I've known you, just don't get you and don't get what you're about. Well, you have to be quite thick-skinned, to be honest. I mean, you, you wouldn't do, uh, you can't do any job now. And I think this is a sadness because we are losing probably a lot of more sensitive people who just don't want to be harangued and harassed uh, in, in the public realm. And it's a problem in politics, particularly, um, where, you know, who would really want to put them through, put themselves through all that and their families through? I mean, I mean that's a very interesting thing. I don't, I don't want to lose that. So we're losing people, sensitive people, sensitive souls, creative souls, presumably, people with something to give. Yeah, I think it's a real risk. And, and in my neck of the woods, um, it is difficult now um, to operate without coping with abuse. And I think it's fair to say probably particularly for women, um, but actually right across the board. Um, uh, and you, you have to be able to, to, to deal with it. I, actually, oddly, you know, the, the abuse is not the thing. The, the thing that is wounding is the slightly more measured stuff that just has taken a position about you as a person. Um, and and uh, that, that is what you have to steel yourself against. And if you can and take no notice of it, then you'll be fine. But if you can't, I think you probably get out of it. One of my former guests, she said a wonderful phrase, she said, a thought is not a fact. Um, tell us about life in the lockdown, because you're, 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 um, you're broadcasting from, from home. I've heard and read about um, dogs with um, squeaky plastic pineapple toys and, um, and, and online delivery um, arrivals at, the, at, the, at just the, at the, at the fun moments. I mean, how, how are you making it work? 
Yeah, well, the thing is, finishing work at nine or finishing the program at nine is quite good because the deliveries don't generally arrive before then. But I, I have, um, it, it's occasionally been quite a close run thing, and that would be difficult if the bell, the doorbell, went, wouldn't it? Have you had, have you had a particularly big interview where you've been worried about that? Yeah, I haven't even thought about how I'd deal with that. Um, uh, of course, in the old days, the phone would have gone, but of course, nobody uses landlines anymore, so that's not a big risk. Mm. And that, there must be a way it off too but i'm so incompetent i haven't found it we our dog is quite quiet so he comes in and sleeps next to me while i'm doing the program uh and um snores very mildly but but doesn't bark so that's that's sort of okay is that sort of an instant focus group of how your interviews are 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 going i mean you you talk well obviously the the rules are going to change i guess in terms of the government's advice about working from home i mean in terms of what you've what you've missed i mean i i noticed you missed a mr pratt sandwich right you know i'm, I'm sure um I'm sure that can be arranged but i mean in terms of how an interview works over 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 sort of digital versus being together in person what are you able to do it just as well do you think or, or do you lose something in the face-to-face you lose a lot and th- this is the big problem the problem isn't going back into the studio and whether you're at home or in the studio. The problem is that when you are face-to-face with someone, and we used to on the Today programme, we, we got people to come into the studio. Not everyone did, but a lot of people did, including a lot of senior politicians, and you sit there eyeballing them. And when you have a conversation with someone, and you're, um, it's not just that you can use your eyes and your hands to kind of give a sense of... of of the to and fro of the conversation but it's almost more elemental than that i think it's about breathing it's about the all the things that come from having a person um sit face to face sitting in front of you um and without that radio is damaged there's no doubt at all about that we can cope with it we'll cope with it for a year or so um and we'll come back after it and radio is more popular than ever Speech radio, podcasts, the whole thing. People are absolutely desperate for it, interested in it, but it it really doesn't work well long term if it isn't face to face. I mean, I suppose moving on to the last question. First of all, I'm, I'm I'm thrilled that your dog turned up just to sort of get you know certainly give me a realistic understanding of how of how your interview techniques are working these days. What's the dog's name, by the way? Toffee. Toffee. Yes, it came into the room, took one look at you, and went out again. It, it's an open invitation, Justin. Toffee is welcome on this show anytime. I mean, just to pick up on your last point, and my, and my last question, I guess, is that I think what you're talking about there is that, like this kind of you know, the importance of togetherness um, mm. and bringing people together in a world that felt quite divided before coronavirus, but now incredibly different. In terms of where we go from here and how you feel about it. I mean, you've always struck me as a very positive character. I mean, how do you feel about the next steps, where things are going? And actually, are you optimistic about the future, which seems to be very, very different than than it looked um, even even a year ago? Look, I mean, one-to-one, our personal relationship have, have hugely improved, haven't they? Or at least we've become reminded of the things that are important. Um, and you know, it's already well to say that from a kind of the, the, the privileged perch of someone who's got their own house and all the rest of it and, and, and lives in relative comfort. But all of us, actually, including those who've had a tough time, 
as so many have, including those who've lost their jobs, as so many have or are about to, we have learned a bit about what makes all of us tick. And I think that that is something, without being sort of too kind of foolishly optimistic, I think it is quite important, it seems to me, that we do kind of learn from that. And I think we will as, as individuals. I don't think that's something that doesn't come from government or come from academic research. It comes from us as, as individual uh, people. I'm, I'm, I was brought up as a Quaker, um, and, and I'm not a Quaker anymore, but I've got great respect for the Religious Society of Friends. And one of the things you do once a week as a Quaker is meet in silence. Um, and quite often no one speaks for the whole hour, but you just meet together in silence. And it seems to me that, in a sense, we have met together in silence uh, as a nation, almost as a world. And um, uh, that's a good thing, actually. Oh. That, that contemplation isn't, isn't a bad thing at all. In the wider sense, you know, how do we exist as a country? Um, we'll have a little bit more pedestrianization than we used to have, I guess. I mean, I, I think I suspect that people listening to this, they still have a much better idea because they tend to run things <laughs> rather than me. Uh, so they kind of know how they're going to run the things that they run differently in the future already. But I, I have a sense that actually we won't change as much as we kind of endlessly prattle on in the media about. So, so it'll be a change. But unfortunately, we're going to have change because we're going to have to end this edition of Changemakers, Justin. Thank you very much for being my guest. And yes, it's been from today to predictions about tomorrow, a story of great tales of our time, the challenge, I guess, of how you and others tell them, and some clues and ideas about maybe what comes next. Do join me next time on Changemakers.